All right. Are you ready for this? Welcome to another edition of LocoCast.net, the post-vacation, I'm still half hungover and exhausted edition. Wow. How about you? How about you, Craig? <laughs> uh, yeah, things things have been interesting over on this side. Lots of uh, lots of changes uh, that I can't necessarily go into. Nothing you know major or anything like yeah. that. But uh, it's going to be an interesting month. Let's put it that way. Welcome to July, July first. Yes. <laughs> well, look at this way. We got a nice long holiday weekend here, and with that, we're going to try to see if we can post and edit this uh, episode before we get back. <laughs> there you go. So, what have you been up to while we've been away? Anything interesting? Uh, not a whole lot. I've been playing a little bit with uh, with Rust and stuff and cleaning up some Python code that I, I work on over at work uh. and such. Mostly stuff for my own my own sanity over that way. Um, how about yourself? What's been going on? I have been getting ready for Pi Ohio. Woohoo! Oh yes, Pi Ohio. Yeah, coming up. exactly. I got. Um, it's. I'm giving. Uh, my tutorial was approved, so I'll be giving a two-hour SQL Alchemy tutorial there at Pi Ohio. So everyone, you know, come on down. Should be fun. And uh, I've been doing everything but working on my tutorial. I I got little. You know, <laughs> Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> I got a couple of theme T-shirts. Um, Mike Bear, the author of uh, SQL Alchemy, and uh, also a thing called Mako. It's a template language that I use. Um, had some theme T-shirts done. I thought, you know, it'd be cool if I give him my talk. I was wearing an SQL Alchemy shirt. Heck yeah! So yeah, I had to do some shirt ordering. I had to you know make some hotel reservations and tweak you know my talk description on the website and all that. But I haven't actually written anything yet, so I sh- I need to get to work. But just so that everyone else knows, Pi Ohio is coming up at the end of July, the 30th and 31st. And you have no excuse to not be there if you're listening to this podcast. Oh my goodness. It's it's going to be very, very cool. I, I've got a few different talks all bookmarked out on some API stuff, like growing your API and consuming and writing APIs. I'm very API happy right now, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. But yeah, so um, that's going on the the... the Blocks for the hotel room reservations are, are there the cheaper blocks, I think, are running out on both of the hotels the 4th and 7th of July. So if you don't have your rooms yet, go get them quickly. Yes. And uh, I know we're, we're I'm heading over to the Blackwell because it is an absolutely gorgeous hotel. It's, it's yeah. student run. Uh, it's part of the hospitality um, section over at Ohio University. Ohio State University, I should say, and um, it's an amazing place, and uh, definitely looking forward to heading back there, and of course heading back to Pi Ohio and seeing all the awesome people that uh, yeah. we see well, how, every year. There. How in the world did such a state as Ohio get cool Python people? I don't understand. I don't know. I, I keep telling people I vacation down in Ohio. I don't understand it. <laughs> That's so bad. Other <laughs> things we have coming up is Ohio Linux Fest. That's Speaking later. of vacationing in Ohio, <laughs> I know it's sad. <laughs> no, we really we, we love you guys, Ohio. If only because that's where we go for all our tech conferences. 
<laughs> but um, what, when is that exactly? I don't even remember. It's in September. It's like the second week of September, I think. Yeah, we got to get on that because we're thinking about trying to get a uh, open source table down there this year. We'll see if we can do that. Yeah, it's it's the ninth, tenth, and eleventh, I think. Uh-huh. Maybe even the twelfth. I I don't know because they do some uh, some talks afterward that I haven't participated in. Yeah, so come down, make uh, get your, get on these things, and we'll we'll see you guys there for sure. And then uh, lastly, we have also in September a little bit of a bunch of global jam love. Start your planning now, locos. Set the calendar. Get your little to do list going. Yeah, it's uh, it's coming up, Onerik. Or Onerik, or however you pronounce it. I'm refusing to even say it. So the, the O word. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> the version I will also not be running. <laughs> oh come on. No, I think I don't think I'm gonna upgrade. I'm anything until LTS, and and that's just that. Um, so I'll see you guys at the next LTS. I think. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I've I've been using the Addy as well and uh, loving it. You're starting to love it now. All I'm right, starting yeah. to love it after after I managed to basically remove my entire music hard drive. I had a one terabyte drive that I had about seventy percent full of FLAC files that uh, went poof in the upgrade because I did something very stupid. Um, just for those of you who are out there and want to, you know, use me as a warning slash example of what not to do, do not mount your one terabyte drive under slash var slash storage. And then do an upgrade because Ubuntu will remove everything in VAR meticulously, including your vet slash VAR slash storage directory. And part two of the warning is, is at any point you wish to do an upgrade, make sure anything you don't care to lose is backed up on another external device somewhere. Yes, and I, I had this theory, uh, which <laughs> I'm regretting. The theory was that, oh, it's just stuff that I'll be able to replace very easily. After uh, several weeks of ripping discs... It start, started out that way, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it was a good theory uh, at the time. And I no longer hold this or subscribe to this theory. I now have a 2 terabyte drive that I do all of my backups to, including Visit Drive. Very, so. very good. Backups are important. And uh, drives are getting big these days, which means you need some even bigger backup drives. Those little 500 gig externals just aren't cutting it anymore. Well, and, and I, I bought the, the uh, 500 gigabyte that I was using because it was cheap. And I thought, well, you know, two terabyte drives are, are going to be expensive. Two terabyte drives are incredibly cheap nowadays. Yeah, they, they're plummeting like rocks. It's, uh, it's amazing. Although the only thing is, man, I start to get nervous at the prices because, you know... I'm a firm believer in the get what you pay for philosophy. Right. So I know prices go down, but the amount they've gone down just starts setting off all my spider senses of cheap, cheap, cheap. You know, especially because it's it's two terabytes of data that you're going to lose. And, you know, I had the same problem when we moved over, you know, like 100 gigabyte drives. I was like, oh, my God, you know, 100 gigabytes. I can't afford to lose 100 gigabytes. And like now, you know, I lose 16 gigabytes whenever I accidentally (laughs) store something in the toilet. You have emptied the trash. There went 16 gigs. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, let's get into the meat of the conversations for today. 
So up so- first, we have an interesting discussion that you brought up. You wanted to talk about this. This is this is kind of interesting because there's been a lot going on recently with um, a lot of hacks where users' passwords are exposed, the database is exposed, and there's even been some recent things where whole servers have been confiscated by the FBI. I hear. Yeah. So let's let's talk about this. We we initially were talking uh, just about your bookie uh, project about you know you were using bcrypt and I th- I said. Why would you go through the trouble of using bcrypt? Why not just use a salted hash? And we got into this discussion of why that is a very bad idea to do in this day and age. Well, funny enough, I was reading through the news groups, or not the news groups, but the news feeds, and I saw that Instapaper had managed to get their servers confiscated. And oh, by the way, they were using salted hashes as well for their passwords, and they were considering moving over to bcrypt. And I thought... What what a what a grand way to tie these two things together because I know both you and I use Instapaper and yeah. uh, well, I, I not even getting into the whole story of of why the FBI was going through the data center <laughs> that was also hosting things like Pinboard yeah uh, you know it was just a, a complete mess over there yeah and I kind of think you know what this this might be good to talk about from from a couple of different points of view right you you have the developer point of view, which is what I'm familiar with and what I think we are talking about as a developer right. how, how do you store passwords in your applications but I think it's actually good for the users to know to be able to be to, to talk intelligently about the developers or people that they're paying or, or you know getting software from to ask them what are you doing with my passwords because i think it's not a bad question these days and with all the different hacks going on to be able to say hey what are you guys doing with a password and to draw some conclusions based on that well so, even so it, you know best practices are supposed to be that you're not supposed to use the same password across multiple multiple machines in that and even even so you know if someone manages to get your password in that and you accidentally you know got lazy that particular day mm. you know what all do you have to change in that what what can be exposed from this right and these days uh, there are so many services out there that require a password. I, I've long ago stopped telling people that they need to have a different password for every site or use something like LastPass, which actually itself had some suspicious activity and stuff that might have had some exposed information uh, on it. Um, eventually, there's going to be some kind of, you know, there's always a hole in the wall somewhere kind of thing. And so the the idea is that whenever someone submits a password to you, that you don't actually store the password. So, so users out there, here's here's a few. Uh, you might be um, a redneck. Um, you might be a bad developer if you see one of these things as a user. If you ever submit for um, create an account on a website and they email you that your password, run, run, yeah. run, run, run quickly. That generally. And there is one exception I can think of. If they're sending the email in the same web request that you create the account, so the password's been encrypted, but they still have a copy of the unencrypted, it's possible they can send you a legitimate in the email. However, any developer that does that has violated rule number one of that you don't pass passwords over unencrypted. Email's not encrypted. It passes clear over the wire. Um, right. You know, median. So it's still run away. But um, it's a strong hint that they might be storing your password in clear text in their database, which means if anyone gets a hold of that database or access to that database, can see your password. 
Um, and since every user, I, I'm, even myself, I have some passwords that are used on a few different sites. I, I mean, and I try to be good about this. I use LastPass, and I still have diff, you know, the same password on some different sites. So you need to be aware of that. All right, that's step one. Step two, if you ever go to change your password or forget your password and their forgot password setup emails you your password, again, the only way they can do that is if it's stored in clear, plain text, which is, you know, as little as, you know, as as bad as possible. This is basically as bad as they could be about this. Um, And you basically want to make sure that if you ever get that, that you... You, you set that password to something you use nowhere else if you have to use a site that you email and complain and rage that, hey, you morons, don't do this. Um, you know That's just not the way it should ever be done by anyone. There's no excuse for it. Um, and I have run into sites that do this and sites that are professional. I mean, I've had... Geez, I'm trying. I think it was a retirement site for one of the companies I worked for or something before. You know, their retirement plan had something where they actually could email me my password, and I was freaking out that I had here's basically financial data in a system that I, you know, had to use because that's where my 401k or whatever was at, and that they were storing my passwords in clear text. And I sent a very angry email to them. Well, even corporate sites I've seen get very lax with this, and I, I was able to look through databases where I could see right. A clear text list of all the passwords out there, and I'm sure that had I tried some of these passwords elsewhere, I would have been able to get into systems that I would never, I should never have been able to get to. And these days, it is entirely too easy to get a hold of someone's email, um, general location information. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because there was the whole like Sarah Palin's email was kind of hacked using the forgot password setup, not because the password was in clear text, but because she was public figure, they could generate enough information about her to guess her sec- security questions. Like, what high school did you go to? You know, what what's your the- kid's name? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's amazing how bad some of this stuff is. So anyways, that's, that's level. We're going to call that level zero. It's not even worthy of a number. It's, uh, you know, of a, of a digit. It's zero. Um, the next step up from that though. It's what's called um, encrypting your password or hashing your password. And that's where you submit a password and they run it through some kind of algorithm, some function in their code that turns it into something different. Now, there's two times, two, ty- two ways of hashing. You have a one-way hash and a two-way hash, right? And a one-way hash means that once you take the password in and you run it through the function, you get something out. There's no way to get back what the original item was. You can't run an unhash function. Two-way hashes can go both ways, right? So, like, a lot of people will use um, base64ing something as a two-way hash. You'll see this a lot in a lot of protocols and stuff in the web or whatnot, where they'll take a bunch of data, they'll base64 it, which basically changes all the characters to be, instead of base, you know, numbers instead of whatever, base10 or whatnot, they'll base64 it. basically compresses it. Yeah, compresses it down, and then, um, you know, they can can uncompress it. Um, One-way hashes are what you want for passwords. Um, I know IT sounds very cranky when they do this, but whenever you ask, you know, like, hey, can you reset, can you give me my password? And they say no, the answer should be no. And the answer should be no because they're using a one-way hash, and they honestly cannot. There is no way for them to come back and give you your password back. Right. So the way people get around this, the way hackers you know, try to get into this, is what they do is they generate things that are called um, – there's, there's two ways. There's brute force and there's rainbow tables. Now, brute force is basically saying, all right, let's say I get a hold of your hash password. Um, I could either A, brute force a system and keep trying different passwords until I get one that works. Or I can try to 
you know, get the hash to match by going through and brute forcing, telling a machine, I would like you to generate random passwords of characters, you know, until you get one that looks like this hash. Now, hashes are generally fairly long, you know, um, I think... Uh, well, there's, there's several different algorithms too of hashes that are that are popular, and, and that's that's where we're gonna get up to is that that helps add to the safety of the hash, right? So, Instapaper was kind of in trouble because, um, well, they're actually level above us because they salted. But so, you know, when you generate this hash, let's say your password's testing and my password's testing, um, after they run through a hash function, they'll both be the same set of strings, right? So they'll keep generating words, and they'll keep hashing them until they find one that looks like yours, and they go, oh, that's your password, right? They brute-forced it. The quicker way, because there's a, there's a common, you know, these hash functions are commonly known, is to actually go through and generate a rainbow table. And a rainbow table just means that they went through and they did all this brute-forcing and they saved all the results to a file. So somewhere they've got something like a, like a CSV file, that has, you know, here's a bunch of words or strings, and then here's what they hash to. And then whenever they get a hold of a set of hashes, they just go to that table and go, all right, hash, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G equals Bob, you know, as a password. So the next step to get around that is to salt the hash. And this is what Instapaper was doing. And when you salt the hash, what you do is you say, all right, hash function, I want, you to ha I want you to take this string, this password, let's say it's testing, and I want you to, to run it through your hash function, except what I also want you to do is to take this extra bit of string, the salt, into consideration. So now, after testing gets run through, it's different than, than testing without a salt. And that hash will be different for every salt that, that, you, that is used. So as long as my salt does not use the same, you know, um, salt that you use to generate your rainbow table, or as long as you don't know what that salt is, it's harder for you to brute force it because you have to take into account two bits of unknown data, not just, I don't know what your password is, but I also don't know what the salt is. And any rainbow tables have to be specific to the salt used. And so, you know, eventually you'd run out of time trying to generate all the possible combinations of salts and of um, password combinations. Or at least you used to be able to run out of time. <laughs> yeah, you used to be able to run out of time. So this is where Instapaper got into trouble. It's because in, the, in their case, the FBI stole the servers. The servers had the source code. And in the source code was the string that was used as the salt. That There was one salt used for all the different passwords. Once I have someone's salt and I know, oh, they used the salt, one, two, three, four, five, to generate their passwords, I can now begin brute forcing a table that, that uses that salt. Okay, right. So that was their problem. Was that it, it's they were salt. They were using salted passwords. This is the phrase that you'll hear, which is okay. But they were kind of using the most basic, low-level version of that. And these days, that's not good enough to prevent people from taking a database dump or insight in the database, be it a SQL injection attack that they can you know print out the user table or whatnot, and guess the passwords out of that. Well, it's because too the the FBI got access to the source code, and so right. they got access to the salt that was used. Yeah, well, no, the I, algorithm that they used to, to salt the uh, the hashes. Right. And usually, as a, as a software developer or company, what you try to do is make sure the database servers on a different machine than the application server that has the salt info, so that if they get into the database, they don't have the salt. But if they get a hold of the source code, they don't have the database. You know, so 
it, it, it's kind of, you know, normally you're trying to you set these things up. It sounds like, I don't know if, you know, all the machines were in the same rack and they took different machines or if they were if both the database and the source code was on the same machine. I'm not sure which, but basically the, the, having the two together was what caused part of their problem. So well, I think the entire rack got taken, so they had access to all the machines yeah, anyway. Yeah, no, they had access to everything. So what I used to do, um, and the next level up from this, is that whenever a user says, please give me a password or generate a password or here's my password, um, what I would do is I would generate a random salt for that user. I would then salt their password or hash their password with that random salt. And then I would store the random salt in the database along with the hash. So in this way, when I came to validate their password, I could come up and go, all right, here's what they said their password is. They said testing. Here's the salt I used when I made this hash. Put the two together and rerun the hashing function. In this case, it's a SHA-256 um, hash here. Which means that it used 256 bytes. Lots, lots, lots of bits. Lots, lots of yeah. bits. <laughs> lots of bits, which makes them longer and harder to guess and whatnot. And then I would see, okay, now does that, what I just built, does that match what I stored in the database? And so in some ways, this isn't a much better because of the fact that the database still stores the salt. What's fun about this, though, is that the salt is, is now usually, the, the odds are high that they're different for every user. So when you're going through trying to brute force the users and their passwords, you have to go through and build not just, you know, user one salt uh, rainbow table. You have to do it for every different user. You have to rebuild a totally different set of tables because everyone has a different salt. And this, again, as your users increase, makes the workload, you know, uh, another factor uh, more complicated than it was before for any, you know, maliciousness. Now, if they just pick out one user, I just want to get the admin password. That doesn't do a whole lot. Um, it's really to prevent mass spread of the whole thing, right? Yeah. All right. So, well, another thing too, just to just to head back to the the different hashing algorithms yeah. and that, the one that most people are uh, familiar with is MD5, and that one was extremely simple. That's usually been used for things like verifying that you you downloaded an ISO image and that everything was downloaded correctly or that you didn't get some corruption in there. Uh, then you had the SHA standard, uh, which has, unfortunately, it was, it was stronger than MD5, but has succumbed to attack. And now you have SHA2, which is with the, uh, what you were talking about with the SHA256, which has a 256-byte digest associated with it. And... Um, it hasn't been successfully attacked, but because our friends over at Instapaper were using the weaker algorithm, it is more susceptible to even just a brute force attack than an SHA 2 series algorithm, which would be anywhere from 224 to 512 bytes for, or bits for the uh, digest. Yeah, and these days, the problem with this is that the computers are getting fast enough that the, the the attackers can generate these tables or these different, you know, these large swaths of brute force hashes much, much faster than they could before. You know, I used, you know, used to talk about, you know, millions of operations a second or mops, and now we've got, you know, trillions of operations a second. Well, these days we've got the actual computing can take place on these graphic processing units, and they can operate in a hurry. Well, they're closer to the old supercomputers in that. They're highly optimized pipeline architectures that 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they can generate passwords in a hurry. So what you end up doing is you're just trying to make it you're trying to make it not worth it for them to try to attack your your store of your users and passwords. And so one of the ideas that came out of all this was that you know what rather than just trying to make the passwords and the hashes and all that longer, why don't we actually try to make more work for the computer itself? And so there's a couple of algorithms now called bcrypt and scrypt. And the idea with both of them is that, you know what, generally you only generate this um, the, the salt um, for a user when they come in the first time. When you first generate a password or reset a password, you don't, gener- you don't regenerate that salt every time they log in, right? Because you stored that and you're using that to match the password to make sure that it's correct one. So, you know, if you were to add, let's say, I don't know, 200, 300 milliseconds to a person's, you know, sign me up request on your web application, it wouldn't be that bad, right? It's a one-time hit. It it makes the password, um, it takes, you know, 200 milliseconds longer for that request to go through, but that's okay. However, if you're trying to generate brute force a password and that hash takes 200 milliseconds to compute every time, right? then you have made the work for them so much harder because rather than being able to go through and do millions and billions and trillions of these um, uh, password generations a second, they're actually able, you're actually cut that by a huge margin because you have to go through this 200 milliseconds of what they call work in order to, to go through and generate the salt and to, uh, to try to help brute force against this. And that time just gets so exponential because of some of, of the numbers involved of how many of these generations you have to go through that it really makes it just incomprehensible that even on today's highest end stuff, um, being able to go through and brute force a database of, you know, in, in the case of bcrypts, you know, what, what I'm using, uh, password hashes anytime soon. You know, you'll, you'll be old and dead before you can get through it kind of thing. Well, and bcrypt is actual encryption. So you're, tr- you're going against something... You know, that's actual cryptography as opposed to just, you know, trying to figure, trying to encrypt something, you know, on the fly and see if it matches a particular hash in that. Well, you still, you, bcrypt still generates, but you do the same thing. You have, uh, you generate a salt, and then from with that generated salt, you hand it the password string and you tell it to hash it and you get a hash string back. And the string that comes back has the salt in the front of it and the, the password hash at the end of it. And then you do the same kind of matching that you do with the SHA-256 kind of thing. It's just that the algorithm that does that work takes a lot more um, CPU cycles on purpose, intentionally, than the other stuff does as a method to slow down brute forcing. And, yeah, they're um, using Blowfish for that, yeah. uh, which is a pretty nice little algorithm. Yeah, and Scrypt, I've I've not used that. I actually hadn't really run into that before. I looked at it before the show here. They're actually adding memory overhead as well, so that in order to generate and, and to generate your table, you would have to have massive quantities of memory in order to do it. You know, it's limited in memory and CPU. So the problem with that is, I notice is that you know, for instance, uh, Bcrypt has a Python library that I use for the bookie application, so that I make sure that you know it was easy for me to implement that. Um, Scrypt, I couldn't find one. There's a bug report on a Python package called, uh, I think it was Passlib. I'll have a link in the show notes to add Scrypt support, but um, I haven't seen that really implemented anywhere yet on the Python side. So basically what Instapaper said was like, oh, you guys are saying I should be using Bcrypt or Scrypt. I'm going to go check those out. Now, 
Um, I think he was going to go through and implement bcrypt. I, I haven't asked. I haven't seen. I want to make sure that they're using assaulted bcrypt because uh, assault's very important. Um, I did run into an application over the weekend that was using bcrypt, but they weren't using assault with it. So um, it's they still should go up another level um, as far as security goes. I think on that, but. Anyways, yeah, it looks like there's even something even more than uh, than Blowfish. I'm looking on Wikipedia right now, and it looks like there's uh, something called Two Fish, which is apparently uh, the successor to to uh, Blowfish. Yeah, we're, when we get into this stuff, we basically enter the realm of people much much smarter than me have figured this stuff out. Yeah, and so uh, Blowfish was developed by <laughs> Bruce Schneier, so he he knows a little bit about security. Yeah, um, and, and so that's the kind of thing where I actually implemented bcrypt, not because I really understood what was going on at first, but because someone smarter than me said, hey, this is what's better than what you're doing. So I said, okay, you know, people smarter than me, I listen to them. Um, as I used it and kind of went through it, I kind of figured it out. So like at first I thought, well, I don't know. I don't get how this is any safer because I'm storing the hash right here in the database with, uh, with the salt in the same table, in the same everything. If the user got in here, they would know what the salt was. And it's like, eh, that's okay. Because they still have to go through and regenerate their tables for every different combination of salt that's in there. So um, it's not that it completely makes it impossible. It's just everything's about making it much, much more work for the attacker to get in. That's really what all the stuff comes down to. Right. Because honestly, it you know, if we didn't have things that were capable of, of generating you know huge amounts of passwords or things that were able to brute force any of this stuff, things like salty and SHA string would probably be okay yeah we'd be at least back would at, be you know reasonable yeah we'd be back at md5ing stuff but you know but yeah as the world moves on so must we with our knowledge with that what we use to help secure and protect users and that's really what this comes down to it's really the website or the application's responsibility to protect the people that use it and so you know um i try to make sure that bookie is set up so that anyone that sets up a bookie site is is following best practices as well as myself because we have the hosted bookie now where people you know people are giving are entering passwords in there and uh, I want to make sure that if I do something stupid or someone's much smarter than me comes along and gets the bookie database that's great I really don't care because you're not going to be able to go through and generate the users passwords and if they reuse them across other sites you know I, it's not going to be a problem so and I think this also brings up another point too which is that you know, a lot of developers learn one way to do these type of things, and I don't think they ever think, you know, okay, uh, you know, I, I know how to salt a password, and I know how to store a password using SHA-1 with salt. Right. So I'm going to keep using that for the rest of my programming career. And it's like, no, you, you have to adapt to these things. Yeah. It's, but it's I, no longer, you know, that you, you, you can use whatever it is for the rest of your career. You have to... You have to come about and say, okay, what's what's new? What's going to work for my situation? And I think, too, a lot of these folks think, okay, you know, like I'm, I'm sure in Instapaper's case, they didn't figure that anybody would really be looking at this stuff. It was just, you know, to kind of, kind of protect their users and, you know, okay, we're doing best practices and not storing the direct clear text password in that, but that's, you know, good enough. And I think that the FBI raid that they had, uh, that they shared with all these other folks really opened their eyes to, okay, you know, we we need to be a lot more cognizant that 
we're not the only people looking at this database. We don't have to worry necessarily about outside attackers who don't have physical access to the hardware. We have to worry mm -hmm. about people that can actually get physical access to the hardware that can make instant copies of these database drives. Yeah. Because they, they said, we don't think that any anything's been touched on these things, but we don't have access to the physical hard, hardware, and they did. Well, but we've so had they a, could have made you know ghost copies of these these yeah. drives without too much difficulty. There's been a lot of break-ins over the last year, though. Back all the way back to the Gawker um, incident, where they got a hold of the whole database and they were releasing oh, everybody's God, yeah. password. Um, all the Sony, the Sony's had multiple sites hacked, and some of them say, "Well, we had a salted, pa we had a hashed password." But again, the point we're trying to get across here is just saying it's hashed doesn't mean it's good enough. That doesn't mean that they can't generate what that password is inside of a ten. I mean, I could generate a. You know, a plain SSHJ um, non-salted you know table here. I can download one off a of BitTorrent in a hurry. Um, and then you know, Sony had some that were just clear text. And so you know, it's it's not it's not just you know, oh, if someone got a hold of the server that it's on a rack. This is happening for real users out there, people that were just using Gawker to read news and are just reading, you know, using Sony to play games and you know and and purchase things on there and you know. Uh, if those passwords are reused, that's really where the danger really comes down to, and and everybody does these days. Um, yeah, well, and, and even so, the uh, the lead over at Gawker used a really stupid password, and that oh jeez, and yeah. it just opened opened the doors wide open. So yeah, be safe out there, and encrypt it. <laughs> All right, well, since we're kind of on the topic, I just wanted to kind of uh, give a little bookie status report because it kind of came up last week, and it was kind of cool. I had a couple of people who came into the IRC channel interested after hearing about it on the LocoCast. So there you go. I was getting some word out, which is awesome. And um, so obviously we had a conversation at Coffeehouse Coders uh, a couple weeks ago here about how to do passwords and things with it, which leads to the fact that multi-user support is in there, and I have the hosted instance up at httpbmark.us. I've moved the docs over to docs.bmark.us and, and things like that. So I've got, I don't know, I think I'm closing in on 20 alpha users, and I'm calling it alpha, not beta. Let's just say it's really early. Um, and I'm still, <laughs> I'm still looking for more. If you're interested in testing out Bookie with, with your bookmarks, and particularly if you're a Chrome user because the extension that's kept most up to date right now is the Chrome extension, um, I'm looking for people that are willing to help test it. So let me know. And we can try to get your bookmarks in there and see what you think and get some ideas and things. Um, it's been awesome. A couple of users have had some great ideas that we've already implemented. Um, Greg Grossmeyer and our loco here had a couple of really good ideas on making the extension better to use. And it was like, ooh, good idea. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I've I've been loving it. So it's it's awesome when people have you know other ideas that I didn't think of, but I'm enjoying using them now myself. So. Um, I'm also putting up weekly status reports on my blog at blog.mitechie.com. I'll have those out there. And um, they're posted from the Twitter account, which is uh, Bookie Bmar. What is it? Bmarks. Bookie Bmarks, I think, is the Twitter account name. Jeez, I should know this better, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but, anyways, it's all out there linked. And. Um, Progress is slow, but you know, slow but plodding along and going. And uh, would love to see some feedback and see what you guys think, and to get some more people to try it out. Yeah, I've been using it, and I have to say that some of the new improvements you've got in there, like uh, the least recently used ta uh, tag, 
Yeah, that was great. A godsend. And you don't you don't think you know? Okay, I got a whole bunch of these things, you know, because I'll I'll bookmark things for for my other podcast, Open Metalcast, and having that tag be right there, so I can just click on it and say, "Boom, done." It's yeah. just helpful. I mean, it saves time. Yeah, if you tend to bookmark things in groups, you'll find Greg's awesome feature request there, where it actually preloads your most recently used tags to help you auto-complete them even faster. It's uh, it's kind of awesome. So, um, good stuff. All right, next up, we got to talk about it. It's all, all the rage. Google. Even the Twitter is talking about it. <laughs> That's what's strange. It's, it's it's interesting to see it on everywhere else, uh, all the other social media sites as well. But Google Plus is out. It has finally been released, and everyone knows that Google's been working on something for social. We haven't figured out what. You know, oh, the plus one button, that must be it. Eh, that's not really that cool. That's not on. Uh, well, they're they're adding, you know, sharing links or whatever. Uh, well, whatever. Um, Maybe Buzz will get an improvement. <laughs> Buzz is going away. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is Google Plus, Craig? Google Plus is Google's take on a social platform much like uh, the ones that we have today, like Facebook and Twitter and such. Uh, but what really makes it interesting is that they put the classification right up front, and it's in a very easy-to-use, very well-designed way. Uh, they have this thing called circles, which allows you to classify each of the individual folks that you want to either follow, you want to share your personal de- details with, uh, folks that are in your family, or whatever. You can even create your own circles of, of various folks. So let's say you have someone who's, you know, an, uh, an amazing blabbermouth poster or something like that. You can throw them into something like follow or followers, or I'm following these people. And someone like, you know, your friends like Rick, uh, you can throw into your friends category. So then later on, you can look and say, okay, you know, I want to see what my friends are doing. I don't necessarily care about, you know, this blabbermouth person at this moment. And you don't move. You don't miss things. You know, like on Twitter, I would find that I would miss things. You know, if someone would say, "Oh, I posted it on Twitter," and it's like, "Well, I follow these folks that post, you know, like twenty posts in a row." Uh, so I'd miss that. You know, you got engaged, or you got married, or you procreated, or you had a tasty sandwich. Whatever those things are, you know. And so it it kind of cuts the noise down a little bit, which is a really really handy thing. Also, what's really cool is Hangout. So why don't you talk about the Hangouts? Well, Hangout's really cool. For me as a web developer, this is what's really interesting because it's all in-web, 10-person video, audio, chat. I think they even have more than 10, don't they? No. I, well, from what from what I've heard, the, the it, maybe it's an initial limit, but right now you can only go up to 10. Okay. And so 10 people get basically in a chat room. But the way they do it, it's kind of interesting. Their, their, their take on it was the uh, they wanted to compare it to the old porch where you might sit on your front porch. And if you sit on your front porch, you're kind of signaling that I'm – I'm more apt to accept a conversation request than I would normally be. So it's kind of different from Skype because on Skype I may be logged in, but I may not be ready to do a video call. I may be, you know, in a in a mode that you would not want to video call me. Let's just say. Um, <laughs> but in this when way, I can sing. I'm so pretty. I'm so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> right. I forgot the mic was on. Um, but yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry for you. Um, but Hangout, basically, you start a Hangout. And so when, but the act of starting a Hangout makes it, you know, implies it, it brings up a little thing that says, hey, check and make sure that, you know, your 
your hair's combed and your clothes are on, basically. And it makes sure that your mic and, and video is working right. And then you start your hangout. And then you just kind of sit there until someone else comes along. And if I see that, oh, Craig's in a hangout. And I go, oh, well, he's looking to kill some time. I'm looking to kill some time. Let's chat for a minute. I'm more likely to jump in this video call thing with him. But if you're on discussing a topic, you can get up to 10 people going, and you see little thumbnail videos of all the 10 people in there. And then what's cool is that there's a main large window that jumps to the person that's actively speaking with the microphone detection. So it's really kind of cool. Um, I've only used it with up to four or five, I think five people so far. Uh, and at that point, you start to get uh, some overtalk, and, and it's a little crazy. Uh, 10 seems like it would be a lot. Um, but hey, you can do it. And if you can self-organize, you know, um, <laughs> raise your hand or something for questions. I don't know. It's actually very, very interesting. The quality has been really good on my end. I, there's been some hit and miss, I think, on some of the people. I, they're trying out different codecs and things from what I understand on the back end to see what works best. Um, but that's really kind of an interesting feature. And what's cool is it's one of those, while a lot of Google is kind of, you know, oh, that's like Facebook or oh, that's like Twitter or whatnot, this is kind of their own. It's like Skype, but the fact that it has so multi-user and web-based at that makes it really a lot more than Skype. Well, I think the interesting thing, too, um, is that they're, it's not so overt as to what they're doing. They're kind of integrating things in there. And it's like, okay, well, you can get mail notifications. And they just kind of show up. And they added a new bar so that you get the, you know, I've got a little one over in the corner letting me know that somebody did something on there. And I should probably check out what they did. So it's not that I have to hang out in Plus all the time like I do with, with something like Facebook where you have to have something, some client always on there. It just, as long as you're on a Google property, it will show up. Yeah, any Google prop, and that's what's kind of amazing is how tied into all their different stuff this is. It's and it's not even done yet. I mean, it, there's a lot of working code here for what they're calling field trials. I mean, I look at what I've got for Bookie, and I'm basically field trying, and I'm like, holy crap, uh, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. But yeah, the fact that any any Google site can act as a, uh, a Google Plus client because you get your notifications and your toolbar across them is is an interesting play for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting too. And, and of course, the first thing that everybody says is, "Wow, this is great! I can put. How can I post my stuff over to Facebook? How do I get my stuff in from Twitter? How do I throw things over from into Identica? You know, people are already asking for the next level of this stuff. Of how do I get stuff out of here? You know, outside of the data liberation front stuff, which I thought was really cool that they they had that right up front. It's like, okay, here's how you export your data. So they're definitely thinking about a lot of these these problems not really from an engineering perspective so much but they're actually starting i think to get the social aspect of it yeah no, they're doing a really good job with this release this time um they're using the hangouts themselves to help people figure out how to use the tool and stuff um they actually put up a video that was getting shared around earlier today i mean this this really came out like what wednesday tuesday yeah yesterday really for me Okay, well, I mean, I think I think the, they were giving the first demos to the uh, Technorati back at Tuesday or Wednesday, and it was starting to get around after that. Um, but uh, they've already had a video out that basically says, you know, hey, um, thanks for the great feedback. We're, you know, listening. Here are two items that you can expect to see coming in this next week that we're going to have updated. Um, so they're being very transparent. They're being very, you know, the, the feedback mechanisms in this thing are just awesome. If you haven't sent feedback yet, go do it just to go through the experience because you basically hit a little button and it 
like reads a bunch of info and takes a screenshot and allows you to highlight or black out parts of your screenshot before you send it. It then shows you like, here's a list of all the browser data we're sending. Here's all your data we're sending. Here's a copy of your cropped and blacked out screenshot that we're sending. So you can give some, shoot, I would love to have this for all the apps that I've built. Like, you know, no kidding. It's like, good grief. Um, again, the amount of work put into some of these things has just been amazing. But they're doing a really good job making sure that they you know, let you know that, that they're listening, that things are moving along. And it's, it's one of those things where it's field testing. It really, it's, lim- it's not open to everyone yet, and, and they're getting some ideas, and they're adding things. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm impressed with what they're doing. Whether or not this was going to turn out to be a wave thing where people play with it for a couple of weeks and then never come back or, or what, I don't know yet. As someone who doesn't I don't see it being that way because of the integration. I think people will still have a reason. I mean, for with the the notification thing up at the top is pure yeah. genius. I mean that that's that that Pavlovian dog thing of what happened. Well, yeah. you treat. <laughs> but the thing is, is that so? I mean, I, and you know, I've been playing with it for the past couple of days, and I realized oh, I haven't been I haven't been looking at Twitter as much. Um, and but I'm not a Facebook user either, and so I think eventually you kind of get to this thing where you're getting the um, the signal and noise. How much worth is it, you know, to go through these different services? Because you can't view them all at once, you know. It's no. you can try, <laughs> and, and I have, you know. Google Plus tends to be different because of the threaded conversations, the photos and stuff in it. It's more more detailed, more personal. I tend to use it with more of the friend stuff. Like I, I would use Facebook if I were a Facebook person. And Twitter is just more of a – I get so many news items and links and, and just information that I, I process. And, and it's almost like, a, like an RSS feed to me uh, that I've kind of culminated from lots and lots of people and that's not in there yet. So I, now I have a couple of different things I have to go through and check. And I'm sure there's going to be people, because Google Plus is the new one, is going to have less important data in it. And they'll go through it for a while. But I'm interested to see how many people go, well, look, I'm sick of checking Google Plus to get this info and going to Facebook to get my family's latest, you know, who, you know, what did Johnny dress up as? What? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. You know, what did Johnny dress up for for Halloween this year? And then I'm going to go to Twitter because that's where I, you know, I follow you know, Lenovo or some company or, you know, Joe Schmo super person, Ashton Kutcher, and I want to know what he's doing, you know, so... You follow Ashton Kutcher? No, I don't. I'm. <laughs> we had Johnny at Halloween, and none of these things were my items. Come on. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I do think there is still potential for this to not quite work out, um, but we'll see. I'm, I'm interested. They've got my interest peaked. Definitely. And I... I... Like I said, I, I like you said, I didn't really check Twitter a whole lot while it was going on because I was getting I was getting the same hit from Google Plus that I was from Twitter. You know, I was still getting the social conversations and such. So yeah. it will definitely be it's gonna be an interesting couple of months to see where they take this. All right, and it's that time of the show, book season. Craig, what you been reading? I have been reading the Python Standard Library. Uh, unfortunately, I have not been getting to it as much as I would like to. Uh, so I'm in the first chapter of the Python Standard Library. So I'm going to punt a little bit and say that 
what I've read thus far seems like it's very interesting and, and a, uh, a helpful book. Uh, the style is a little different than what I expected it to be. I expected it to be a little more referential and dry, but yeah. it seems to be very conversational, and uh, it looks like it's going to be a pretty quick read once I get back to it. Now, did you did you go through and did you follow his um, Python module of the week? Fun. It's written by Doug Hellman, who yes. is Python super genius, and he's been doing this Python module of the week for a few years now, I think. And this is yeah. basically this book is supposed to be putting together all those Python module of the weeks into book format. So, is it is the format of the book different than what the blog posts were? I, I well, I don't, I don't necessarily know because I didn't actually follow the blog post during the time. Okay, I wonder but, if that's why it's more conversational because it was written yeah. for a blog post initially, and when it got put into the book format, it's going to bring some of that bloggy read it like a like you're talking more kind of thing. Yeah, it's not like uh, like dive into Python where it literally was like a print of the entire web page and they threw some page numbers in there. Because it, yeah, this seems more like a coherent whole. Yeah, of a blog. no, definitely. That's that's why I liked the the blog um, because it was a. It's more than just the documentation thrown at you. He actually put some really good work into those um, blog posts where he would go through with sample uses and examples, and he'd walk through most of the stuff that's in the docs, but in a more example-ish, wordy kind of way. I think so. Yeah, um, definitely. I haven't, I haven't picked that up yet, but it's on my radar um, for sure. I definitely recommend it. It it looks like it's going to be a very good read. All right. Either we're not doing episodes in uh, small enough time spans, or I am completely breaking my read less, do more rule, because <laughs> this is not working out for me. Um, no, I've got, I've got three books. We're going to run through them really quickly here. The first one was uh, a small, uh, start small, stay small. It's a book about micro-entrepreneurship. And I'm interested in it because obviously with Bookie, I'm kind of starting a project. Um, I'm starting to do some hosted stuff. Eventually, it'd be kind of cool to do the WordPress kind of way where you can install it yourself or you can uh, pay a service you know, a service fee to have me run the stuff for you kind of thing. We'll see if that ever happens or not. But um, I thought the book was kind of interesting. It had a few really good points for any project person. Um, one thing, I know a lot of us have started projects and not finished them or been able to keep them going very well. And I don't know who the hell you're talking about. Yeah, dude, Bookie's been, <laughs> what, four years in the making now? Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but it had some really good practical you know, ideas for trying to help you keep on task with things, um, balancing multiple projects. Uh, and while there was, the, there was some of the whole, you know, I don't know, business salesman kind of thing bits in there, there was still enough good info that I was definitely glad that I read it. Um, and I'm, I'm taking some bits out of that. So I, I recommend it definitely if you're doing some kind of projects on the side or, you know, you're working for a very small company or something, you know, or your idea of, uh, you know, ideal life is, you know, having a couple of software bits that you've written that you kind of live off of. That's the kind of idea of the book. Um, next up is handsonnode.js. And I think that's still being it's, – it's like the Safari – or not Safari, but the O'Reilly really rough cuts or whatever they I, call it. Yeah. I think I think when I first grabbed it, that was it was kind of like put out that way. Um, it's actually pretty good. One thing I like about it compared to the O'Reilly um, Node.js up and running is it gets into some more details on things like building your own Node.js packages for libraries and things. So this would be like the equivalent of the Perl CPAN stuff or the Python PyPy packages and things. I was floored that the O'Reilly book didn't, at least I don't remember seeing that in it. I read that one first thinking, oh, it's O'Reilly, it'll be the better one. 
Um, it may not have existed when the O'Reilly book was written. No, I mean, they're both because the O'Reilly one's still in the rough cuts, which is also why I give it a little bit of slack, right? So okay. Anything Node.js is so new right now, it's actually kind of crazy. Um, but it had some good info. I recommend it if you're getting into Node.js. Definitely check it out. And then, because I feel like we've been a little bit too positive with book reviews around here lately, <laughs> I had to bring in the IWAS Audible book, which was my choice to go down and listen to that on the way down and back from Virginia, which was a mistake. So how many ditches did you roll into? Oh, good grief. I'm sorry. But if I had to, re- if this book read anything like it sounded, I would have to go strangle the six-year-old that wrote it. Um, Whoa. <laughs> It is written like a six. It's written at a. I understand that they wanted to dumb down some of the stuff because it's technical, but good grief was it written for sixth graders or by a sixth grader or something, and very you know all kinds of repetitions of little phrases over and over and over and over and over and over again, and I guess it might be just how he he speaks, but when you speak you get small bits, whereas this is like a whole condensed long conversation for, geez eight hours plus. Um, which made it just so difficult to get through. And so it's it's written like a Mythbusters episode where they tell you over and over again what they're doing after the commercial. Except that Mythbusters only goes on for an hour. Oh, God. <laughs> so imagine you watch the same Mythbusters episode for eight straight hours. Maybe that would So what exactly it. did they talk about? I mean, I, I'm not it was familiar his, with the book. His, it, oh, so it's a story of Steve Wozniak, a co-creator, author, whatever, or beginner of, of Apple. Well, he's computer. the creator of, of, of the Apple computer. Yeah, of the Apple one and Apple two. And basically, at the end, he kind of goes through and goes, look, I wanted to set some of the stories straight and give a little memoirs. It's kind of like his memoirs. It's written with the help of some author who's, you know, all over doing the new Byte magazine and stuff. And so she's supposedly... A, you know, good writing, famous person, whatever as well. But it's his, it's like his life story, like from a kid and about his dad and how he was raised. And, you know, then it gets into in school and how in, you know, in fifth grade he was doing computers, you know, uh, not computer, but technical, you know, electronics, electronics and stuff that, that you know, yeah. was making, you know, college dropouts jealous or whatever. And, uh, it, it goes on and on through like basically his story about going through going to college and how he shop went to different colleges, worked at different companies, worked at HP, you know, um, got together with Steve Jobs, uh, what they were kind of doing, you know, how the Apple thing got started and and how we kind of got out of the Apple thing, you know, and so... I mean, that's what it's was basically. Because you knew enough about Wozniak no, already, or no, that's why I got this was because I felt like I was behind the eight ball because I've never been a big Steve Wozniak fan. I don't. I never really looked into this stuff, so okay. I, I didn't know how Apple Computer got started. Really, you know, and I didn't know. I know he's kind of. I know he's kind of geeky. I know he's not that he's on the payroll. I know that he's not really with them right now, though. You know, I know that people. He's very high regarded, and everyone loves him to death, and, and all that stuff. So for Did me, you know that he created Breakout. No, I didn't know that at all. No, there. Uh, <laughs> I've been there for a while. It, it goes through about his uh, doing the um, universal remote, his company doing that, you know. And it was like I didn't know he did the universal remote, you know. I, I didn't. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. So that's why I got it. Was I? I felt like my, I didn't have enough nerd credit, and so I went through it. And now I'm just like I feel like I should revoke points of life credits for going through it now. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that because it, it it did seem like an interesting book. Uh, it, it did, and I'm just letting you know if if you can get through it, if you can deal with the you know some books have maybe have good material, but just the way they're presented is very very unbearable. Well, I'm wondering if it may have been because it was an audio audio book. 
Because I know I, I listened to the Lord of the Rings, and after right. a while, it's like, you know, I really don't give a rat's ass about Boromir. <laughs> right. and, and so if this was my first audiobook, I would do that. But because I've listened to a half dozen or so now, um, I, and I've liked the other ones, I actually went through um, an audiobook that I, I didn't put in here on um, networks. It was called Linked. And it's basically about just how networks work, you know. And I'm, by networks, I mean um, networks of people, networks of computers, the you know networks of uh, links on blo- on the web and things. And as dry and kind of researchy stuff, and and I had no problem going through that. I mean, it, definitely there are parts where I'm like, okay, this is much more researchy than you know I personally need to know about. But I've gone through some dry stuff in audio back audiobook format, and it's been okay. This was just the language, the way it was written. I mean, I threatened when I on Twitter, I threatened that if I hear, no, really, I, I really did one more time, I'm going to shoot somebody. Um, <laughs> yeah, feel free. Let me know if I'm crazy. So, I, I so love, thumbs up, huh? Yeah, I, yeah. I'd love to get your feedback. Let me know if you've read it. Let me know if I'm crazy. If you've listened to it. Let me know if I'm crazy. If you've both read it and listened to it, let me know if there's a difference. We would love to hear what you guys think about these things. You and can, if you're the author, we'd love to hear from you. <laughs> if you're the author, I'm way below your you know, your interest grade. I, I don't care. Um, but no, uh, you can send us feedback at feedback at lococast.net, and we will take that anytime. All right, we're heading up on an hour. Let's wrap this baby up because we're overrun. Well, no, according to Skype, we're over an hour, but, you know, it's all the BS in front and the BS in behind. But, yeah, we probably should wrap it up. All right. I'm Rick Harding here with LocalCast.net. And I'm Craig Maloney. We'll see you later.